0: This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist, Johnny Owens.
1: All right, welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. This is Johnny Owens. I'm here with Kyle Kimball and Zach Dunkel from our group. And today I'm I'm super excited, super, super excited because we're going to talk about Something with BFR that we get so many questions about. We've I've been trying to get studies going um, for a long time in this population, um, and so we're going to talk about BFR and its potential application in pediatrics. And so we we have some folks here that are from some really esteemed institutions, from Children's Health Care of Atlanta, um, as well as Connecticut Children's. And not only are they kind of some of the top centers for pediatric care and pediatric ortho, ortho care, but they also have uh, registered clinical trials that are starting up, um, God willing, if COVID allows us, um, it, with pediatrics post-ACL reconstruction. So from Connecticut Children's, I've got Adam Weaver here, um, and also, man, I'm Nick. You told me your last name. I'm gonna, I'm to work on. It. I'm, I'm, I'm a Texan, man. We don't have many Italians down here. So, also from Connecticut, childrens. We have. This is when Nick. we
0: need Ben to do yeah, the Petruzzi. pronunciation. Did I, for I do it us. well. Was that, was that a good enough? But...
2: that's perfect. It sounded great. Jam. You did, man. That sounded sounded awesome. Nice accent oh, on that. Oh
3: Smith. Yeah, <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: Oh, <yeah. laughs> oh yeah. no, he knew. Yeah. He thought Zach was a kid. He told Zach Smith.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and he goes by and he goes by smith um and then we uh, find the rest of my i lost my notes sorry and then also from children's Healthcare of atlanta i've got Jeannie graf on as well and genie I, I gotta ask you you're a unc undergrad you know so you, you've got that unc blue in you and, and then seriously you went to duke fellowship after that like so did you and C, that they just disown you after you decided to go be a Dukie? Um,
5: no, I, um, so I actually, I didn't do the fellowship, but I, I worked Oh, you worked there. The All resident right. and the fellow work. Um, yeah, I did my last clinical there and they offered me a job. And then I met my husband there too. So you can see that behind me, that Duke sticker. It's just.
1: It's so you're So you're a Duke house now?
5: Oh, no, 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 no. no. Okay. You should see All this right. house in March. March Madness yeah. this year. Great year for it to get canceled. Carolina was tanking, so
1: yeah, Perfect. yeah, yeah. Well, at least something good came out of it. So, and also, kind of want to highlight your institutions. So, um, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta is is just this this massive, amazing institute. From everything I've read about it, um, you guys are both, you know, in the you know, ranked as U.S. News and World Reports, one of the nation's best children's hospitals. You guys have three hospitals. You have like 700 beds, um, do tons of patient visits a year. And and so, um, you know, if anyone's going to do a study, we would like to see it come out of a place that, that just has that kind of reputation behind it. Same thing with Connecticut Children's. It's the only pediatric hospital um, in all of Connecticut focused solely on pediatrics and also ranked in U.S. News and World Reports. So two two just big-time institutions, which is cool because – Man, we get hit up like almost weekly, if not every other day by groups that want to do research um, and, and, and ask us questions about doing a blood flow restriction. But the biggest thing is what's your history of the research and, and can you get the enrollment numbers in? Nothing kills a good study like enrollment um, not being there. And so you guys being from some institutions that they can actually get it done is, is pretty cool. Um, so Jeannie, you want to kind of talk about... Atlanta Children's or Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and and just, um, what you guys do there, how long you've been there and kind of highlight it a little bit.
5: Sure. Yeah. So I've been there since February, 2018. Um, after I moved down to Atlanta and we have 12 clinics throughout the Metro Atlanta area. Um, I don't know if you guys know much about Atlanta, but it's a very spread out city. So, um, I think that's a huge strength for us is that we have an excellent orthopedics department and great surgeons. And we have um, a lot of arms kind of reaching out all across Atlanta where we can give those patients that see our doctors and have surgery with us, give them access to great physical therapy. Um, We have um, a lot of contracts with high schools and local soccer club, local um, club sports that uh, also just help us reach our community in a, in a bigger way
1: and so would you guys do a study do you focus it throughout all those different satellite clinics as well for follow-up for doing the study protocols or do you have like just everyone comes down to the main center and that's where it's all done
5: so covid's a little unique the traffic's a lot better right now but yeah, usually yeah. traffic is pretty terrible so um, that's another reason why us having a lot of different clinics is really helpful so um, for the study, we kind of analyzed which four clinics see the most um, ACLs, and that's um, kind of how we decided which clinics would um, would be participating in the research study. So we're not just for reliability's sake and limiting the yeah. number of raters. We're we're not going to have all twelve clinics participating. Um, we're sticking with four.
1: That's nice, though. You know, we have a a big femur fracture trial and in, in like Houston Memorial Herman, they have to do all their like testing and everything downtown Houston and just getting patients to drive, you know, from Sugarland, Texas, downtown Houston. It's like a two hour trek, even though it's only 20 miles away. So it's, it's nice when you can spread it out and do it that way. What about you guys? Um, out of I do I do know an interesting fact about a uh, children's healthcare of
0: Atlanta. they okay. they have a therapy dog Instagram. Like they have a big it's therapy dog program.
5: Great. Their therapy. Really? I, I yeah. did a little bit of cool um, work in the hospital and the yeah, it's it's amazing.
0: So actually funny enough, Jeannie, my cousin has one of those dogs. She is one, I don't know. Is it a handler? Is that what you call them? Um, she works in the education department. It's in the, she's in math, I think her name is Ginger Armstrong, but you you might not know her, but you'll, you might know her dog peanut. Like I, I told her, I'm like, I don't know if you know this woman Jeannie, but she might know your dog. <laughs>
5: I'll have to look for, <laughs> to look for on the Pina. on the Instagram for sure.
0: Yeah, but they they do they have a, they have an Instagram for their uh, therapy dogs, and I was just
1: that was awesome when I saw that today. It made me happy. We we had a therapy dogs at our base, and they had to wear name tags, but they would take the pictures of the dog for their name tag, and they took it like in the same area where we'd all get our tags done. And so it was just like a dog, like <laughs> on the name tag, it always looked like they're posing for it. it a
5: literal dog awesome. tag.
1: Yeah, dog tag. There you go. <laughs> literal dog tech.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, yeah, you guys folks in a little bit about Connecticut Children's. How long you guys have been there? Sure. Kind of what it's about?
2: Yeah, I can start. Um, so as children's hospitals go, we're relatively newer. So um, Connecticut Children's was established in 1996. So we are um, kind of a younger institution and and we're continuing to grow. And that's one of the um, pillars of Connecticut Children's is growth and we wanna reach out to as many patients and families as we can in Connecticut Um, and then also the surrounding areas. So um, Western Massachusetts, which is is pretty close to us and then as well as Eastern New York. So our goal is to serve the patients and families of Connecticut and then the the bordering uh, states around us as well um the sports medicine division was established 14 years ago so we started with one pt uh 14 years or the equivalent of one full-time pt and now we're up to 14 uh full-time pts so we're, we're growing um we have great doctors that have worked with us in the past and are working with us now and um it's it's a really good time to be at Connecticut children's i've been there um, coming up on my 12th anniversary uh, so I worked at a um, outpatient clinic in Fairfield County for a year, and then I've I've been there since. Um, so I, I'll let Adam kind of tell a little bit about himself. But it, it's a it's a place that really fosters growth. Um, and one of the things when when Adam joined us, um, he he saw the potential that Connecticut Children's has, um, and then we've we've been working really closely together doing research um, for several years now. We are clinic structure. We have one main hub where everything kind of started. That's where the majority of our patients are seen out of. Um, but over the past two years, we've expanded into other areas. So um, we're on the right in Hartford, uh, where the main campuses are. Um, sports medicine hub is Farmington, which is about kind of 10 miles outside of hartford and then we're on the the other side of uh hartford as well so we're we're starting in that area and then with a goal to expand and reach all the kids in connecticut
4: nice yeah and i so i've been um i've been with connecticut tones almost four years um but been practicing uh 15 almost 16 years um i'm originally from maryland so Um, That's where I grew up. That's where I went to PT school. So we hate Maryland and we hate Duke and and North Carolina, even though they're in the Big Ten now. So um, no, no hard feelings there, but um, we're just we're just jealous that we're not North Carolina or Duke. Um, So I I, my my background, I I sort of worked in private practice for almost 10 years and spent five years sort of in a cash-based practice um, prior to coming to Connecticut Children's. Um, So coming on board and we there's just a great opportunity the way we work pretty closely with our docs and 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 our and our staff um with everything being in one one place um and so and i think kind of at this point we're seeing anywhere from 75 to 125 acl surgeries a year just just in that sort of sort of ballpark we've had some surge in turnover so that's changed a little bit um so that's, that's kind of been the, you know, we've, we've had good support as far as trying to allocate time as a full-time clinician, which is just is difficult, um, but good support as far as getting the time to try to navigate, you know, a lot, all the all the things that go into to doing some sort of clinical research um, from that standpoint. So, um, you know, we kind of see obviously a lot of lower extremity issues but you know primarily knee stuff right now um ankle we do see we were seeing a lot of upper extremity shoulder and elbow stuff but with certain changes obviously you know how that that will change things but the the hub of our or the majority of our our post-operative care is, is certainly um acl and, and patellar instability which is just a huge huge um chunk of, of pediatric if you want to call that sports medicine but pediatric orthopedic care
1: uh, yeah. from that standpoint and you guys are tied into UConn, right? We're right? not.
2: We're, we're independent. So we're, um, our, we're located next to UConn's campus. Um, okay. But we are an independent uh, children's hospital, so. OK. One of my uh, good buddies who worked with me at the Center for
1: the Intrepid, he, he's a professor at UConn now, and I'm a consultant on an NIH grant for, I never can get the name right, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, um, using BFR in that group. So, um, they might be tying in with you guys, I think, cause you all have the patient population if we get it funded. So cool. Well, let's, let's kind of move into the blood flow restriction talk here. Then um, we'll, we'll stay here on the Connecticut side. When did you guys start thinking about trying this and how long have you been doing it there and, and kind of give us a little background on, on your thoughts on blood flow restriction in pediatrics.
4: Yes, I, I guess I can take that. So I, I initially, um, sort of was exposed to stuff, um, from a good friend and colleague of mine, Jeremy Baxter, who was now with the Houston Texans. Um, And when he was at Northwestern, he kind of sent me some papers. This is 2013 or 14 and said, hey, you got to check this out. Um, And that sort of started my sort of personal sort of just study on and looking, reading into things. And then um, when I came to Connecticut Children's, um, you know, Nick and I started having more conversations and um, we really started to try to push, um, just to educate our, our, our docs, um, to, to say, Hey, what do you guys think of this? Um, that sort of, that, you know, took quite some time. Um, that took probably a year or two, um, of multiple journal clubs and sort of just kind of pestering surgeons and pestering the, the people that handle the money. Um, from that standpoint. And then um, so I guess last it was last spring around this time is when Zach came up to uh just to to teach our whole staff. Um so that was in I think May of, of 2018. So so we've had about a full year now um okay. where we're using it daily, um, you know, for every single not every single patient, but a large, a large chunk of patients. Nice. So, so
1: once you got the buy-in, it just kind of started to to just go with it
4: yeah I mean we had we had pretty good um surgeon one of our main surgeons was really in support of it and once he sort of gave us said hey let's let's go for it um we we kind of hit the ground running from from that standpoint um and so I think Nick and I were talking earlier today I think we probably have in the last year close to anywhere from we we don't have an exact number but 700 to at least 700 or to a thousand sessions treatment sessions um, in the last year, just of, of patients, that's a rough estimate. Um, so, and we, so from our surgeons that are in house with us, we literally, we really don't have any issues as far as, um, you know, they will tell us if you say, yeah, we don't want you to do this based on a medical condition. But otherwise, we pretty much they are trusting of us of using it as as needed.
2: And one of the the things you asked was. Uh, when did you know you wanted you wanted to study it? Um, so there were when Zach was presenting, there were a lot of questions from our group, just people saying, uh, "What is there uh, in the pediatric population? Can you um, can you educate us on that?" And, and Zach's answers were, uh, <laughs> "There's not much out there yet." So so once I heard that 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 kind of threw the flag up in, in my head, saying, "Hey, let's do this." Um, Adam touched on journal clubs and um one of one of the doctors that we worked with um he pretty much challenged everybody to 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 do things so if you asked a question um you pretty much sign yourself up for it so um i was thinking in my head i was like hey let's do this let's figure out a way to do it and then by the end of the day uh adam zach and i were talking about um potential of, of getting this going so once once we knew there was an opportunity, we, we wanted to take that opportunity because um, we, we obviously believe in it. And we, we think it's beneficial and we've uh, been treating ACLs for a lot of years and, and there's all testing out there. And we've, we've done some research on that. But we know that those people have deficits. We need to find a different way to do it. Um, and, and this is one of the avenues we want to investigate it uh, a little bit more.
1: Yeah, and I, I think I want to highlight that when we get to a little bit, the, the recurrence of ACL injuries, especially in pediatrics, you know, the the PTOA aspect, post-traumatic osteoarthritis aspect of it, protecting the meniscus, everything else, and, and maybe how I think we can help this. Jeannie, how about you, your institution, how long have y'all kind of been implementing it and, and what have kind of early numbers if you have it or anything like that?
5: Yeah. So I first heard about blood flow restriction actually when I was still at Duke sports medicine and our, um, resident at the time, Sarah Parker gave, a like a grand rounds presentation on blood flow restriction. I was, wow, this is really cool. And they, I think Duke actually, they purchased some blood flow restriction units right after I moved to Atlanta. So it's, <laughs> man, I just missed it. And, uh, yeah I was talking to one of our one of our surgeons and um, and he was really on board and I ended up applying for a research grant, the Dudley Moore grant through um, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta's Hospital system, and that allowed us to um, to purchase units for all of our clinics in addition to a assistive technology fund. Um, but we actually were probably the last group? Were we the last group, Zach, to get trained before COVID? The, the last group. <laughs> yeah. It was like March 14th. I was, I really, um, I was like, yeah. we're doing it, Zach. We're doing yeah. it right yep. it's happening.
3: That was, that was the thing. I mean, it was like, I'm local, you know, we can get everyone there and let's we'll just knock it out and do it. Yeah.
5: Yeah, I, I was so, I was
1: at Disney World trying to hurry up and get back home, so um, I, I was just as freaked out as y'all were. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, so um, so you know we really haven't been using it very long. Um, I actually took a course back um, in August 2019 um, as I was working on the the project, but um, the rest of our staff didn't get trained until March. So you know we're still. Um, still implementing it and still, um, still getting used to it. But, um, from, from, we've been using it on a lot of post-operative patients, primarily.
1: Cool. So I guess let's get into that now. Um, what's the youngest age that you guys can think of that you've applied this on?
5: Probably 12 or 13. Yeah.
1: 12 or 13. Okay. Yeah, that seems to be, everyone's around the 12 or 13. The youngest has been reported is seven. And we actually just had another seven-year-old. Um, we got a picture of her with it on her, on her arm for a broken arm. I don't know how you can get a seven-year-old Social with medium, a broken man. arm. Yeah. yeah, she was a trooper. She had her like thumb up with the, with the cuff on her Same. arm. Um, so we've, we've seen very young. Um, but yeah, it seems like 12 is what we typically hear. On up through that range, and so we'll get into your studies in a little bit. But I think your your inclusion criteria is 12 to 18 year old, and that's that's kind of the the sweet spot, I guess. Of the ACL post-op, Chelsea is is within that age range. Yep. Yeah. So let's let's go to tolerance. How is it with the kiddos? Whenever they're trying to do BFR, are they squirming like barbecued kittens, or are they are they handling it like champs? Are they tougher than my daughters are when they do it? I think they're. I I
4: think, you know, we were really, I think like everybody, we're all a little bit hesitant at first, like, how are they going to tolerate this? And then as soon as we started, we realized this is not, we weren't giving them enough credit. Um, They probably handle it better than, than we do. Um, You know, and we're for most of our post-operative kids, we're starting post-op day four or five, depending on when we see them, usually within the first week. Um, And we, we've had very little pushback, as far as no, I can't, I can't do this, or it's it's too painful. Um, Sometimes using, you know, Russian STEM is probably worse for them than 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 that. So I think once for a lot of our therapists, once we, we got over a little bit of that sort of hesitation, um, we actually realized we were not pushing them hard enough. Um, And, you know, as you guys have usually alluded to, like, you know, progressing the load is important. Um, And so that's really been a point of emphasis for myself with a lot of our other therapists is we've got to make sure you're pushing them as hard as they possibly can. And that that's probably the challenge at that age is when they're, especially the 12 and 13 year olds is difficulty understanding what's pain, what's discomfort. Um, because it's usually the first time they've had any sort of major injury or sort of something where they've got to deal with that. So, um, yeah. but we've had very few that have actually said, no, I can't, can't do this. You know, this is, this is terrible. I want to stop. Um, so maybe we're really good or maybe, we're not doing something right. <laughs> so. no, I, I I think you are.
0: I think so. Uh, not on. We got everybody all at once. That was awesome.
2: <laughs> no, go ahead. Nick, go ahead, man. I, I just think Adam doesn't turn it on. That's that's probably why. Uh. <laughs> he's he's doing the ultrasound fake. <laughs> yeah. He's doing he shit. That, how
1: how have you seen with the kids?
5: Yeah, no, I want to echo Adam. You know, I I don't think that we were giving them enough credit, and they've all of our kids have been tolerating it really well. And I actually pulled my, you know, my staff because I just to get an idea of how everyone else is doing with it because, you know, we don't see each other in person anymore in staff meetings, they're all calls and stuff. But there's really the kids really like the challenge, especially the ones that have just had surgery. it can be pretty frustrating, especially when they're used to exercise being a lot more challenging and more fun. And this gives them a very concrete goal. And a lot of kids have been very competitive with themselves, you know, they wanna do better than last time. And when you can turn a straight leg raise into a competition and not just this really boring thing where you're laying on the table for a few weeks doing that. Um, yeah. I think that's huge because I think it's really tough to keep kids motivated in that early post-operative period.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah,
3: you- I think, uh, I was just gonna say, I think that that's the thing that both, when I when I taught both those courses and um, even like at, at Akron Children's as well, you know, the question is always like, man, this is really uncomfortable for us. Like our our patients, our kids aren't gonna tolerate this at all. And, and I think that the biggest thing that I tell people is, It's the same with geriatrics. Everybody has this default that that a sixty year old, a seventy year old isn't going to be able to tolerate because the thirty six year old can't. I was going to make
0: that exact point, Zach. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's it's really the same same thing.
3: thing. And and I said you got to give people the opportunity to prove themselves. And and that's just really what it is. Don't sit there and judge the person and say, "It, Johnny." It would be the same thing as you know. As soon as we play that video in the course of the guy with the uh, Taylor Spatial Frame external fixator, I lead into that and I'm like, you're gonna see this guy do some things that you're gonna immediately be like, I would never do this with a with a patient. And I'm like, but you have to give them the, op- the opportunity to, to show that they can't do it. Let them prove it. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's just like Jeannie said too with, with people you know you've taken a straight leg raise it's a pretty meaningless exercise and just it's so boring for people but now we make it challenging and it's almost um we 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 simulate this gym environment and and we give them we put them on the path to recovery and they can actually feel like they're working out in in the gym and and they're getting a a work when, when once they're done with the session they feel like they just worked out versus like, yeah, okay, yeah, I just feel like I, I did some straight leg raises and, and then, yeah. you know, put, put some stem on my leg and I'm okay.
5: Yeah.
1: And I think now, I mean, not just you guys, like you said, Akron Children's, Andrew's Children's, Kenny Krieger, Hopkins, there's a lot of children's institutes now that have are doing it. And, and we, we keep getting these same reports, like, they're fine, dude, get over it. They're, they can handle this, you know. I, I don't, I've never really worked with kids, so I don't know. All I know, again, is, is my is my own kids here. Um, I I do remember years ago, I had a clinic that was doing it. They called and said that their dad wanted to talk to me about it um, to make sure everything was okay um, first before they would do it. You know, they wanted more information or whatever. So how about from the parents' aspect? Do do they uh, pretty accepting? I mean, you guys are obviously experts and professionals, but have you had any pushback or anything from from the parents' side?
4: You know, I was
3: thinking.
4: Go ahead, Adam. As you said, I was thinking about that today, and you know, I can't think of any times where where parents have said, "No, we don't want to do this." Um, and maybe it's the way we're just presenting it and making it sort of they just somewhat know it's sort of the standard of care. Um, but you know, usually we just will describe it as you know, it's a it's a blood pressure cuff on the leg, and we're trying to trick your body into working harder than it really is. And then once they hear that, they say. Okay, do whatever you got to do. Um, from from that standpoint, we've had some pushback from some of our outside physicians. Um, not even need to say pushback; it's more just saying, well, we don't have enough evidence yet in the pediatric population to support this. So, let's hold off on it for for now. Um, but most of the parents sort of just say, "Oh, that's that's pretty cool. Let's let's do it more." Uh, yeah. You know, from, from that standpoint.
2: Cool. And just to highlight what Adam said, we. We really take a lot of time and, and want to educate the patient and the family. So going into it, it's it's not like they just come in and we throw the cuff on and all right, let's, let's do it. Um, we want to, we spend time with them. Um, like Adam said, we get them pretty quick after they have surgery. So within three to four days, they're in the PT clinic. Um, and we're, we may not do it that first visit, but we'll plant the seed and, uh, do some education, and then say, "All right, um, if you guys want to go and, and look this up that this is something that we think is going to be really beneficial for you and give them some some reasons why um, so we've we 've done education there, and then, uh, as we talked about before we we definitely have that great relationship with the docs that we work it with, and they f- feed into it as well so they 're um, letting them know there 's patients that would have gone. To other PT clinics based on geographical um, location, but they end up coming at us because they they sell them on. All right, you can't get this somewhere else, so it's worth it for you to drive X amount of miles or or be in traffic for this long because because we believe in it. So I think that's been uh, extremely helpful for us to to get those uh, patients and families to buy in.
0: I think the, the physician
2: conversation is always kind of
0: interesting Adam so I'd be curious you know all of you guys perspective because I th- I think probably what has been said to you is a pretty common response that we hear but oh, we just don't have enough evidence for this or that and I think for me when I people are asking me questions about this I'm like look it's 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 little kid muscle versus ad, you know adult muscle is the muscle that different is the system so different that there are these added risk factors but I wonder um you know if if you've had circumstance where you've actually been able to kind of talk to the the physician um and them kind of hear what sort of evidence is out there how this technique is being used in adults and they've kind of come full circle and gone okay or has it always just has that just kind of killed the conversation when they say we don't have enough evidence i, th-
4: I mean i think it's come from a- more so, a lot of the work that you guys have done, as well as you know the research that's being published, especially in the orthopedic surgeon groups, that it's much more well known now, and so it's seen more. Yeah, it's seen more, and so it's it's a little bit easier. You know, they say, oh yeah, I have heard of that. Or we were just re- we I can think of two surgeons, and they said, yeah, we just read on it. You know, uh, they're kind of on the fence. And then I maybe have sent them a couple articles, um, you know, that reference something that's sort of an overview. Um, um, from 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 that standpoint, but I, I do think it's it's there's so much research that's being published, and it's more commonplace in the at least you know in the academy of orthopedic surgeons seems to be there. So um, in the big journals now, so people know about it, that especially in sports medicine, so um, that makes it a little bit um, less difficult, I think. Yeah, yeah,
0: cool. Jeannie, Nick, y'all have any experiences on that side, or
5: um, we? Again, since we're pretty new to it, we've primarily been using it with our um, Only with all of our docs are on board and that's primarily who we've been using it with up to this point. Um, So I think as we continue to use it we will be obviously having those conversations with some outside surgeons and physicians.
1: Cool. Other than a lack of studies you know, which if there's not studies and you guys have done the the best thing you can do is said, okay, we're going to step up and be the ones to do the studies. But is there anything that anyone's put out there or that y'all can think of that would be a concern in pediatrics? Early, early on, we were talking about doing a pediatric trial and getting some DOD funding and it was all about the physis, you know, and like, well, what's it going to do with the physis? What's it going to do with the physis? And We were really like nothing, you know, we don't think it's very similar to lifting a heavy load and the kids are allowed to do that. Um, So we had a little IRB pushback on that. But anything you guys can think of or have heard from someone of why a pediatric wouldn't be able to do it?
5: The physis is the main thing that I've run into. Um,
2: Yeah. 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 Even in. um, So we're all uh, we talked about before members of PRISM. Um, Mm -hmm. So even in discussions with the rehab interest, uh, the rehab research interest group, we've um, talked about it. And and even among people that are all in pediatrics, that was one of the questions. Are you using it um, with skeletal immature or are you just doing skeletal immature? Um, After I got back from the meeting, I I emailed Zach and and I said, I know there's a lot of concerns out there. Um, and, And we had talked about it before that, we don't know what those concerns, where those come from, but uh, it can be more a fear of the unknown. Um, mm-hmm. just like you said, Johnny, the, the way that people are going to ha- have those facial injuries, um, they're going to be from compression and shearing and, um, that's, they're going to be doing the same exercises. It's just with the cuff or not. So, um, I don't know how it's going to really affect it. Um, yeah, that's just the the, the yeah. way we've kind of attacked it. I, wonder yeah, I if think that was. Good. I was just going
3: to say I think that was the thing I said to Nick when he emailed me. I was like, "Well, what are the specific concerns? Because we can if we have specific right. concerns and we can address the concerns. But if if it's just like, well, I don't know if I want to do it because of the Pisces. I'm like, well, what are we concerned about specifically with the Pisces? And then from there we can look at it. Because and and Nick, I think I I sent you like the um, the position stand from the NSCA." That was like, as long as it's a well structured, monitored um, resistance training program, it's perfectly fine. And in fact, we think it's advantageous and healthy. Um, So, yeah. And I mean, you know, completely different, you know, when you're talking about maxing out doing one RMs versus someone, you know, doing a knee extension at 20% of a one RM or a leg press, you know, whatever
0: the the issue may be. I wonder if if y'all would just take a moment a little bit off topic, but tell us what prism is because I think a lot of our listeners have no idea what it is. I actually have no idea what it is. So it's kind of selfish, but, um, so, um, yeah, tell us of y'all describe that for us, if you would, Jeannie, you describe it. You haven't talked recently, okay. so you have to do it. I wanted to, I, I I've, I've um, you with so, it. so, uh,
5: prism is stands for pediatric research and sports medicine. And it's really cool because it's a multidisciplinary, um, association that, So there's surgeons, athletic trainers, physical therapists, um, PAs, NPs all across the board. And so, um, and that's where I met Nick and Adam this past year. And I think we're in our seventh year for the annual conference. And Atlanta actually hosted it last year. And then this year it was in Arizona um, but it's, it's really, it's really awesome. It's a great conference and there's a lot of great research being presented and we're growing. So, um, it's a great thing to be a part of.
1: And Prism Abstracts are doing like two weeks, guys. Just, uh, just a reminder. Okay. So, so get them, get them going. All right. Uh, cool. Um, I, I forgot what I was about to say on, oh, we, so we were going to try and look at the FISIS issue. Uh, at our animal lab and um my siri keeps going off and um little bunnies feces will fuse in like six weeks and so they were going to try and do some sort of bfr protocol on these little bunnies hind limbs and see if it made their feces fuse too quick but a little bunny's hind limb is too much like a, a muffin top when they put the tourniquets on it just like like squeezed it it was like a, they couldn't get the tourniquets to work right with those little fat back legs it was like the cutest study of all time but um the air force guys couldn't get the, get the tourniquet to work right so they were going to switch to baby lambs because they have more like just linear long limbs which is still a cute study but um it, it never it never went anywhere but if you guys want to look for an animal study don't do the bunnies the tourniquets just don't work we found out so um I, I think I, I, one thing I want to kind of move into then is I did grand rounds years ago at HSS, and I think this one of the surgeons that was the most excited and talked to me a lot afterwards was their pediatric surgeon, and, and his his reasoning was just the sequelae of these type of injuries, and you know the re rupture rates post ACL in, in adolescence, the post traumatic osteoarthritis. That you see, you know, PTOA after ACL reconstructions, you know, can be up to 87%. Um, when you look at just degenerative arthritis, you know, in people over like 45 years old, it's it's only like 20%. So these young kids, they have an ACL, they have uh, you know the bone bruise, they might have meniscal damage, and the surgeons do everything they can to put it together, and then these kids go back weak, and, and next thing you know, five, ten years later, they have post-traumatic arthritis. So did you guys kind of want to discuss that in your population at all? Of you know what you see, your concerns, and how you think BFR might be applicable for those problems.
5: Um, you know, one thing I was thinking about as I was thinking about tonight is um, I've had patients, especially those that have had patellar realignment procedures, where they might have one and then they'll have another when they're done growing, and. That kid's thigh is just tiny, and it's just going to be tiny for. I mean, it, it's been it was had been years, and it he just wasn't getting that muscle bulk back. So you know, if we can find that this does help our pediatric patients, you know, for especially for those kids that have a surgery so early, if we can get that satellite cell production and actually give them a chance to hypertrophy that muscle again, I think it's going to be so huge. Well, yeah. I def- think
1: a lot of people are like kids just heal, you know, ah, uh, they'll just get better, you know, just rehab them and, and they'll get better. And I, I think they, they all are probably are going back with a deficit. Sorry, Nick, I cut you off, man.
2: No, that's right. I, I just want to add on to to what Jeannie said. We, when we were trying to figure out the population that we were going to work on the uh, pate- patellar instability, the post operative patellar instability was another group that we we're looking at just for that reason, because they're going to have, they're going to be the people that have the most gains to make. Um, so we decided we ended up going with ACL just because that's something we've researched more often. And then, um, the testing and, and how you would test the patel femoral instability patient. A lot of the testing has been done. Um, it's either handheld dynamometry or, um, isokinetic dynamometry. And that, in a person that has had patellofemoral issues for a long period of time, they may get exacerbated and we don't really know if the strength measurements that they're, they're giving or that we're getting are, are telling us what's really going on there. So that, that was one of the limitations with, with using that population. Um, but we, we do think from uh, clinical application, that is a huge population that, um, we can affect and, and have really good outcomes with. And, and we're, we are seeing that um, obviously not in a study, but just um, anecdotally. Clinically, you're seeing it.
1: Absolutely. What about anterior knee pain? Just regular old self pain. Have y'all done it much on that? Yeah,
5: yeah definitely.
4: I, yeah. I, I was going to say not probably not as much as our post-operative kids, especially of late with just the Corona situation, but certainly from just a pain inhibition standpoint I, that's been something i've been um experimenting is probably not the right word but using a little bit more with some of these kids that have just have had long-standing knee pain that have has not resolved with your traditional methods of of strengthening and other things because sometimes it just is, provides a workaround um yeah for that and and again they, those guys tolerate it pretty well as well and they're they're often just desperate especially if they're an athlete to try to figure out a way just to, just so that it feels better um, from that standpoint.
1: Yeah, and I same was just, for you, Jeannie. Oh, sorry, go ahead, man. Sorry, I was just
4: gonna say, you know, in terms of the you know ACL and just with the meniscal pathologies and any of the other pathologies, you know, the the literature is, is pretty clear just that how much quad weakness impacts everything long-term, you know, in various ways and, and the knee joint specifically. So especially for any of these guys my thought is if we can influence this earlier on um, in this way and this is a tool that will help with that and restore some level of symmetry or at least assist it earlier then that's really important especially if you're 12 or 13 years old knowing that you know your risk of re-injury is higher but also your risk of other you know whether it's arthritis or other meniscal pathologies to show up um you know i think this is just really you know important and with our ACLs, we, part of the reason that I never, it really spurred me into using doing the BFR is you know, we have all these ACLs and when we test them isometrically at three months, regardless of graph type, regardless of treatment, sort of strength conditioning protocols, we can't seem to, to break the average of being a 30% quad deficit at three months. Um, mm-hmm. And if this is a way to help that further down the road, um, then i think that that's kind of really the you know for nick and i that's kind of the the emphasis of why we're, we're we really sort of attacked this in this way
1: yeah. and talking pressure then you guys are using kind of our standard pressures that, that everyone 60 to 80 percent typically most of the kids tolerate 80 percent in the lower extremity sounds like
2: yeah i i looked back um through our logs and we, we've had so adam said before we have almost 700 or maybe more than that um, bouts um, or exercise bouts. In our study patients, we have um, 100 to date. And there were, out of that, those 100, there were six or eight, I can't remember off the top of my head, that um, couldn't tolerate it. So um, they, the, the, Six or eight that didn't. They they. It wasn't that they didn't do it, but they just didn't complete the the session during the the rest period. They asked to um, turn it off, or there there were um, they made it through resets and, and couldn't get that fourth set. Um, but a portion of those were we were doing 100% occlusion when they couldn't do either the, uh, long or quad. So we, we, we had them just do it with a a quad set and had hundred percent occlusion. So that was a couple of them that had tolerance issues. Um, and, and all of them were within the first two or three weeks. So we, we start at 80 and then those people then were backed off to 60 and didn't have issues. So, um, it it is a pretty small percentage of, of the, 100 that we've done so far, it was a small percentage Cool. Uh, did we lose Jeannie she's still
1: on there Looks like yeah, I dropped we, out. I we lost her. okay yeah. okay, well, okay, well while we wait for her to get back in then let's you guys Let's move into your study then I'd like to kind of highlight what's going on with her, as, as much as you want to talk about it so you kind of want to highlight like um, what the study is, the when you're going to start doing BFR on them, what the progression is, what your what your primary aims are.
4: I can take it. So, um, so we're we're using a 12 week trial of BFR. Um, we're trying to we're hoping to enroll 20 20 active patients. We have um, five enrolled right now, um, and we're hoping to use. We're probably going to use a, just a retrospective control, just based on convenience. Um, And then we're using a similar sort of strength and conditioning or um, exercise protocol as to what you guys sort of have in your manual. We made some tweaks on based off of what we like better clinically. Um, We start our first visit is started within the first week. So that's anywhere from five to seven days out, depending when they come in. And then they will do three exercises, um, 75 repetitions, sort of in the 30, 15, 15. Uh, 15 protocol um, twice a week for 12 weeks um, and then um, we test them pre-operatively strength um, thigh circumference outcome measures and then we're testing them again at three months um, and then somewhere in their return to sport test between six and nine months and we really tried to set it up so that we could do it without a lot of disruption in our day clinically um, so that we're at, it. we were doing, it really is trying to do what we do on a daily basis and standardize it as much as we could. Cause obviously research is as we're learning every day, as as clinician researchers, I guess I should say that it's really, it's really, based, diff- it's really yeah. difficult. So, yeah. um, that's, that's kind of how we've, um, we've, we've structured it from that standpoint. And then you're um, taking it
1: out far though. You're going to have one and two year follow up, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah, so we usually, you know, we'll, we'll test them anywhere between six and nine months for the return to sport test. That's typically when the surgeon will clear them or not clear them. Um, and then we're going to try to follow up with them at two years um, with a one-year follow-up as well uh, from that. So, And because our, our um, we're not enrolling a huge number of patients, it'll be a little easier for us to, from an administrative standpoint, to try to follow those patients
1: and keep track, track of them um, from that standpoint. Yeah. So even before the two-year follow-up, you got to hurry up and get a, a, an interim paper published to get it out there to be the first ones and everyone cites you. So um, get that one out there first. Um, and your protocol is beautiful. Um, I could go into it super deeply here, but you know, you got these kind of two-week blocks where you slowly increase um, the activity. Kind of keeping the same BFR parameters on it, so um, I, I think that protocol setup's fantastic. And, and it's, if people want more information on it, they can go to clinicaltrials.gov. It's registered on Clin Trials. Um, just look for um, Connecticut Children's and ACL trial, and it's on there. Cool. Welcome back, Jeannie.
5: Thanks. We lost sorry. you for a minute. That's well,
1: okay. So we just went over the the study these guys have going. Uh, more of a pilot trial. 20 patients. Um, but long-term follow-up, we're going to get tolerance, um, or, or we're at least going to get an understanding from a study perspective of, wow. well, subjects tolerate it. And haven't already done 700 plus subjects, I think they already know that they're going to tolerate it. So that's not going to be an issue. Um, do you want to kind of highlight or go into your trial a little bit of what you guys are looking at? And let me, let me get it straight. This trial, you got funding and that funding was for this trial. So it's a funded trial.
5: Um, yes. It's a funded trial and good. it's also registered on clinicaltrials.gov. Yeah.
1: yeah, Good. So give us some, some highlights here. How many you're enrolling um, when you plan to see them post-op? Um, what your primary aims are, what, you, what you're kind of looking for?
5: Sure. So um, our primary aims are looking at quad strength, uh, quality of life, and tolerability. So we our department only has one isokinetic machine, and it's way up north in Atlanta. So um, we are going to be using handheld dynamometry to evaluate quad strength, and then we'll be normalizing that to body weight. And we are going to be looking at the Liceholm score primarily for quality of life. And for tolerability, we're going to be evaluating the patient's discomfort, pain level at the knee and at the thigh at the end of each exercise, as well as their um, omni perceived exertion score, which is similar to an RPE, but a little bit more pediatric specific.
1: Yeah. That's very similar, your talk, that's similar to Luke Hughes's ACL trial. Um, you know, they BFR was harder at the thigh, but better at the knee. So hopefully we see the same thing with, with these PEDs too.
5: Yeah, I might have read that paper, so. Oh, okay, right. so, <laughs> yeah. it sounds
1: very familiar. Yeah,
5: yeah, um, and it, th- that the tolerability literature is pretty consistent across the board, um, but yeah, I thought it was relevant to look at knee versus thigh, and we're planning on um, seeing them for a pre-op appointment for baseline strength measurements as well as um, a post-op appointment within five days of surgery, and then we'll start BFR at the first treatment session, if they are in the BFR group. And um, we'll be seeing them for a minimum of 20 visits in the next first four months. And we have a a bit of a simpler setup with with exercise selection and, um, and staging. So stage one will be Um, Any extension isometric whether at zero degrees or 60 degrees and a straight leg raise and then we'll move into leg press and um, Combination of any extension isometric moving into isotonics when our current ACL protocol will allow um, Later on at 10 weeks
1: And so should we even go down this wormhole you guys aren't afraid of open kinetic? chain acl Um, always good we we want to start that conversation yes zach dunkel might lose his mind i thought Uh, i
5: thought that would come up yeah so you know i (laughs) I think i think this is something a lot of surgeons are probably struggling with and you know i'm hopeful that good literature will continue to be produced where you know there will be a definitive answer in everyone's mind i know in some Mm -hmm. minds it's already definitive but um, that's certainly, um, certainly something that we're looking at and who knows, maybe Nick and Adam's study, they'll have a better isometric strength at whatever time point. It's like, well, they had long arc quad and we did isometric. So, you know, yeah. that could help yeah. add to that.
3: What's crazy well, about theirs is it's like the reverse of what the, a typical person would do that's concerned about the open chain is they're doing open chain early and then moving to the leg press versus other people are gonna do closed chain first and then move to the open chain. It's just yeah, I read that and I was like, this is like so uh, kind of opposite of, you know, the the you know kind of mantra that's put into some people.
1: You made Zach's day when you read that protocol. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I'm glad we glad we could do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well and if you're gonna do open chain, at least with BFR you can do it light, you know, and you're still or hoping to get an effect. So I think that's something and the quad's so important, you know, it's, it's, we get, we moved to functional and there's still a weak quad, unfortunately. And open chain is, is a great way to get it back. So we did it at the, at the base a ton on our post-op ACLs and weren't concerned with it, especially again, once we started doing BFR. Um, Yeah. And your 24 week follow is long-term on yours, right? Jeannie? Yes. Going out to 24 weeks. Cool. I think Kyle had a problem with your omni res. Um, yeah, I do have a problem with it. It, it pretty yeah. much looks like um,
0: beach bum Alice Cooper or something. I like we I've never seen that omni res before. I emailed Johnny I texted Johnny and Zach and I'm like, this looks like that 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 Furies baseball player from the movie The Warriors or you know the there's
1: those guys that run around with the baseball bats.
0: Like it was the weirdest looking
1: picture. So Zach and oh, I deeply yes. read your protocols, and we're going into it. And Kyle, just I'm just looking up, at the photos, like, like doing on the omni of your res. Like to, that's
0: all I do. Kyle, Kyle
3: goes, <laughs> "What is this? The Marilyn Manson version of
1: the omni res? <laughs> <laughs> I
0: did. I did. <laughs> and there, there's a male
5: version and a female version too, which is pretty is funny. Nice. Oh, nice.
0: I couldn't tell which one that was. That was the gender neutral one, I guess that I saw. Dude. <laughs>
3: Approved for California.
1: Uh. <laughs> and in both of them, you have started at 80% LLP is what your trials are going to start at. Okay. And then take it down if they don't tolerate it and just document it, basically. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Anything else on your trials before we kind of move on to some kind of closing questions here that y'all wanted to highlight? Or are Are y'all enrolling now?
2: Yes, yeah, So we have, uh, we have five people active right now. Um, and we're, we're continuing to actively enroll. Um, one of the things that I wanted to highlight, um, and we'll, we'll maybe be able to get some information about, um, what happens to the muscles proximal to, to the cuff. Um, one of the surgeons that we work with is, uh, really wants to investigate what happens at the hip. So we've kind of changed, um, we're not changed we've modified the one of the Chris Powers handheld dynamometry hip extension um, testing protocol so we have the patients um, prone over uh, our isokinetic dynamometer and we're, we're doing isometric hip extension so we're, we're looking at that at um, all our time points so we're looking at that at um, three months post-op and then at time to return to play so um, we can get maybe a little bit more understanding on on what's going to happen proximally with these patients as well in addition to um, the kind of traditional knee flexion knee extension isokinetic Um, and then we also have a couple other functional tests that we, we do in there as well for strength. We do a timed anterior step-down test. Um, so just as many reps as you can do off an eight-inch in, eight step um, in a minute. And then we're, we have the wide balance in there too. And we're, we're kind of constantly looking at how how those tests, um, what they're telling us and, and how they're related to other things. Um, so we're, we're trying to continue to learn on that, But but those are included in this protocol as well. Yeah. And you have that hip extension test as well.
1: Right. Um, the, not the hip extension, the, the bridge test, um, in there as well, which will maybe show us something kind of close chain proximally the, the whole, the whole chain. Um,
5: we're also looking at hip AB and adduction strength and hamstring strength. I just went over our primary outcome measures. So, um, that'll be interesting to see what we find there as well.
1: It'll be huge. So if you get a, a positive PEDS trial, and you get proximal thrown in there as well. You guys will be like on the on the conference lecture circuit for like the next two years, you know, talking about proximal changes to the cuff and pediatrics. Um, two of our biggest questions that, that we get all the time, but, but that would be huge. Are you guys using BFR for proximal conditions currently? Shoulder uh, or hip?
5: Yeah, we're using it in shoulder and hip post-ops as well. In
1: post-ops you guys as well at Connecticut?
4: Yeah, I mean, more so the shoulder than the hip at this point, just based on our, our numbers of, of where we're, where our patients are. Um, I was just gonna say our, one other thing, we're, our, 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 for our study, the pr- our primary graft is gonna be quad tendon. Um, and so we have two surgeons, one that's using an all soft tissue quad tendon and then one that's using a quad tendon with a bone block. Um, so as we go forward, we may we may sort of be able to see some other, we'll be able to look at some of the quad tendon just as it compares to some of our other retrospective. Um, We have a lot more hamstring data. We have a pretty growing body of quad tendon data in this population. So, um, and right now we're not seeing much of a difference as far as our, a lot of our other numbers, Um, but that'll be sort of a secondary, um, sort of, you know, we'll be able to see some things that certainly will make our surgeons happy as well too, just in
1: support of the quad tendon yeah is that a trend in pediatrics going to the quad tendon away from hamstring
4: it's certainly regional i think in in the northeast um at least i mean maybe we're so insulated with our surgeons um but I, it seems to be at least with in some of the conferences at, at prism and there was a lot of press a lot of uh, research presented on quad tendon surgical techniques as well as just you know some of the short-term gains long-term long-term sort of outcomes. And there's not a lot of long-term outcomes yet, but some of the long-term outcomes are, are still are, are comparable to the other graft types uh, at this point.
5: It's pretty rare that I see a non-quad tendon ACL in Atlanta. Huh.
1: Very interesting. Cool. Anything else you guys would want to put out to so people that are thinking about BFR and pediatrics? Last pearls? Thoughts? Trust the kiddos. They're, they're tougher than us. They, they can handle it.
5: Yeah, tell don't them. Be, don't be afraid. The prof- yeah. The, if you tell the show them a few videos of professional athletes using it, they'll be right <laughs> on board.
2: Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, we have a lot of those nowadays. And I, I think uh, I'll just kind of reiterate what, what Jeannie said before the, in in my experience, people that have done it and in, are in competitors and athletes they love it um and they they're coming back asking for it and and unfortunately we've had people that um have gone and torn a second acl and the first time we we didn't have bfr and they they just report that things the second time are, are going a lot a lot better um they attribute it to bfr obviously being through the rehab before uh, has a huge huge impact on that as well Um, But from a strength standpoint, we've seen some pretty good results with that group of patients that are are, uh, kind of returners or um, either contralateral or um, secondary, ipsilateral injuries. Sounds like you got a second
0: study there, man.
1: Cool. Zach, Kyle, any other questions you guys have? I got, I got another question for
0: Jeannie since she's in Atlanta, you know, and years ago, Jeannie, you have no idea this, but um, you may have heard us talk barbecue on the show before, which inevitably I'm going to bring up. It's going to go to Texas. It's going to go to barbecue at some point if I'm on the microphone. And so Zach swears to me that Georgia barbecue is every bit as good as Texas barbecue, Kansas City barbecue, all this, and I, and and he he, well, does, know, no. he exactly. does know he does know his barbecue. Said, it
3: was superior. I'll, I'll give you. No, <laughs> it was superior.
0: And I'll give you. Said okay, he says it's superior, but this is my experience. He sends me a recipe for barbecue sauce that was basically. A bottle of Jack Daniels, a teaspoon of salt, a teaspoon of pepper, and a and a tablespoon of molasses. And that was the barbecue sauce recipe. So my yeah. initial read on Atlanta barbecue, Georgia barbecue is poor. It, what's the barbecue like in, in Atlanta? That's my question.
5: Guys, I'm still in the North Carolina vinegar barbecue train. Say, she's That's a where I grew barbecue. up. I'm a yeah. vinegar barbecue girl. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't even tell you about Pork Atlanta and barbecue. vinegar. <laughs>
3: We do we do vinegar in Georgia, yeah. We do good, good. Yeah, I haven't yep, had it yet. Yep, we do we do. Um, you go to Dalston
0: Jack Daniels.
3: It, I mean, <laughs> it's Kyle. Not everyone likes vinegar. You got it. when when you serve barbecue, you typically invite people over. You know, it, not, not everyone just orders wagyu.
0: Yeah, I'm, not, uh, I'm I'm, it, I'm elite himself. baby. I'm barbecue right. elite, Zach. What can I say, man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's wagyu, left brisket every <laughs> yeah. dang day.
3: <laughs> yeah. I don't think Myra Mixon's ordering up uh, Wagyu brisket. Okay?
1: so these guys could go on for hours. So I'm going to cut We're them good. off there. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially the Connecticut guys. You know, having to listen to so this. Yeah, they're going barbecue. Lame barbecue talk. Yeah. yeah, we don't
2: have we don't have barbecue here. <laughs> yeah. We barely have food. The only sauce, <laughs> I know has, only sauce I know has meatballs in it. So yeah, I was gonna say, just
1: all Italian up there. Cool. Well, thanks, you guys. This is awesome. Super excited to see these studies go and um, keep us updated. Um, It'll be, it'd be great to, to see at PRISM next year or so, at least kind of an update on how the trials are moving along. So, Where is PRISM th- next year? Y'all want to plug that real quick? Houston, Houston I think. Is
0: it? Okay. Yeah. H-Town, baby. Yeah. Y'all can get some good barbecue in H-Town, Connecticut, boys. Yeah. Perfect. You go to Killen's out in Sugarland. You go to uh, – If we can get there. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. We might be be
4: presented it virtually. It might be virtual
1: all over again. I know. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. Stay in touch. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com